most of kids' content is about selling stuff to kids. And it, it, might, it might be kind of a sneaky sell or a, you know, packaged in education or something good for kids. But the, the truth of the matter is that in order for the investors to monetize or recoup their investment, they really need to push consumer behavior elsewhere. Hello and welcome to Best in Fest. I'm Leslie Lepage, the director of the La Femme International Film Festival, and this is a podcast for people who are interested in advancing their career in TV and film and learning the dirty little secrets of Hollywood that make it all work well today. My guest is Marlene Sharp. She is an amazing filmmaker in her own right. She is a director. She is a writer. She's gotten recognition at the Austin Comedy Film Festival, Kids First Film Festival, Canine Film Festival, San Luis Obispo Film Festival. She's also the proud winner of the 2019 LA Shorts International Film Festival Script Competition. She had served as a director of production at Level 5, uh, home of Yoke Watch, and then she's formally a producer Sega of American Sonic Boom, which everyone should know. And we have a, a bonus. Uh, we have bonus material down here in my Puchiness. <laughs> so yes, so she might have an opinion every now. And oh, then. good. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we we love having doggy love opinions having doggy. <laughs> for all the doggy lovers right. listening in. Um. Oh my gosh. Perfect. So. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, a quick question: How on earth did you get in to industry to this to animation and then kind of segued into animation how what was your what was your pivotal oh my gosh this is what i want to do in my life and then how did you get your first opportunity up sure uh that's a good question um so all my life i did not dream of being an animation i dreamed of being an oscar-winning actress and i pursued that up to a point uh and and still still do i i still hold out hope that maybe i'll be the betty Betty White of my generation and reach my peak in my 90s or something like that. But anyway, um, so I went to school for musical theater. I have a, an MFA in musical theater and a bachelor's degree in, in drama. And so after I finished school, I decided I didn't really want to be a starving artist. I'd rather be like the, the rich and glamorous kind of like a mogul rather than a starving artist. So, um, an, an auteur or, yeah, something, something more, um, with more cachet than waiting tables and going on auditions. And I was, I was interested in other aspects of the business. And in, in my graduate program, we did focus a lot on writing, writing musicals and, um, and performing original work. So that was of interest. So, one of my first jobs in the industry, uh, after going to San Diego State, got my MFA, moved to Los Angeles, and I started temping. I don't have any secret sources of income, so I did need to support myself. So I started temping, and I landed at a very small company with only two other people, um, and it was the consulting company of a gentleman who was instrumental in bringing Power Rangers to the USA. And Power Rangers, some of the listeners might know, is a Japanese uh, still going, still, still producing Still going, episodes. yeah. And so the gentleman who I worked for, um, he, 
he had worked on the toy side of the business and he retired from the toy company Bandai, which owned the rights to Power Rangers at that time. And so when he retired, he retained a, a consulting arrangement with Bandai where he'd work on all of their merchandise driven shows, which was pretty much all of their shows. Um, and he was answering to a lot to the Japanese office, the headquarters of Bandai. So what would happen would be in Japan, they would make tons of, of TV shows with companion toy lines and they'd become big hits in Japan. And then they would ask Frank, my old boss, well, what can you do with this outside of Japan? So we were constantly getting material from Japan and being asked to, to make it um, more global in, in focus and, um, and translate it, translate the Japanese and, and so forth. So I started out as his assistant. I started out as a temp. Then he hired me as his, as his assistant. Then he only had one other employee, a director of development, and she left after a year and a half. So then I moved into that role and I uh, worked there for five years. And uh, I've never really moved out of that space, right. to tell you the truth. I just <laughs> fell in Stay, there. Stayed, yeah. Yes. Fell in there and, and stuck. <laughs> and I, I have tried. <laughs> I've, tried. <laughs> I've, uh, I've gone through some existential crises in, in my life where I thought, you know, I would really love to um, work for a health insurance company or something and just just do theater in the evenings and you know but um other industries won't have me Leslie I cannot <laughs> I I this so yeah so earlier in my career um I I did have a bit of a double life where I was sneaking off to auditions and um I had agents and I was I was doing that whole thing in secret and then um, also pursuing a, a non-stage or on-camera career. I was doing like the behind the scenes. I was de doing development, which in the kids business, um, kids business, which is tied closely to animation, is a lot about toys. Um, most of the content, whether or not companies will admit it or, or artists or what have you, um, most of kids content is about selling stuff to kids and it, it might, it might be kind of a sneaky sell or a, you know, packaged in education or something good for kids. But the, the truth of the matter is that in order for the investors to monetize or recoup their investment, they really need to push consumer behavior elsewhere because the, the license fees for kids entertainment are just not the same it's it's not uh an apples to apples comparison between the kind of money you can make in grown-up entertainment versus sure. kids entertainment kids entertainment so right so they're making the money on the merchandising but J japanese companies do it way more clever than american companies at least earlier on right because they would create the merchandising first and then and then back create the the programming is that right well that I'm I'm not exactly sure. I'm so um I'm I'm not a hundred percent I can't I can't speak with great authority on the, the history of Japanese merchandise driven content, but I do know that a lot of it, especially a lot of the things that I have worked on, um have had a couple of different kinds of beginnings. One is manga, the the um 
comic books, the the Japanese comic books. And so right, it, right. It, it's if you think of a, a parallel, it's like the, the comic book industry in the US, right? Like for all these years, there was there were comic books and people loved comics and the, the, the business was up and down through the years. And then um, then people started adapting the manga into content for the screen. And then um, and then also video games. That's another way that they all tie in. So, and, and sometimes, you know, something will start out as a video game and then it'll become a manga and then toys. And it, it, there are different ways that things will start, but it is similar to the way things uh, are in the U.S. where, you know, an idea could come from anywhere. But um, in Japan, um, they have been very clever about tying in the merchandise, the toys. And animation has, from what I understand, the Japanese animation business has, their, their native business is seen as something for everybody, for the whole family, and for a, a lot for adults, too. Like, if you look at the films of Miyazaki, they, they deal with very mature themes, and so, um, so that's mainstream entertainment. And adults like to collect toys there too. Um, there's just it, 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 so it's, it's not it's, just for kids over there. It's not right. So yeah, so so they've got a glo- they've got a more global reach over in Japan than they do here, where it's more targeted to kids. Yes. Yes. Mm, right. Yes. Interesting, interesting. And they make really good toys there. That's another thing they have going for them. The toy companies are, in targeting adults and adult collectors, the sculpting is beautiful. And just, uh, it, it, it's, you know, whereas the uh, toys that you'll see coming from the U.S., and it's not across the board, there are exceptions, but we think of toys as something that have to be very sturdy for little kids to right. play with and throw around and put in their mouths and whatever. But the Japanese are very much into the artistry and the sculpting and the painting and all of that. So you can see why it, um, it attracts a more sophisticated audience. Interesting, interesting. So in, in the world of animation, are you starting to see uh, different trends in storytelling for animation here uh, uh, as opposed to Japan or or more crossover content coming in to the American audiences? What's your purview on that? I think now more than ever, there's an anything goes attitude in in content getting greenlit like i remember um even as recently as maybe like 10 years ago there was a um a pervasive belief in in the animation business that animation had to be either for everybody like everybody meaning kids and family like a co-viewing experience or it had to be for kids but it could not it, the the industry could not sustain stuff that was particularly targeted towards adults other than maybe like the simpsons which had some sophistication or maybe the you know some naughty car- cartoons on adult swim and anime of course those were the exceptions but like um like what we're seeing now more on um uh, uh netflix and i really think the streamers have been instrumental in in opening up people's perspective on this there there's more and more animation that's just 
I guess it's kind of genre bending or genre, uh, you know, cross crossovers like like Arcane um, is something that just debuted on Netflix. And that's and also it's based on a video game, um, a, a video game franchise. And so that's another thing that was kind of poo pooed until a few years ago. And uh, like, oh, nobody can do a video game based property. Right. Or it's all, you know, people do them, but they all they they never they do it wrong and they're always going to flop. I don't know. People, people let, as I'm sure you've observed in the business, Leslie, how people glom onto this group think and, ah, yes. uh, it's maddening. And then maddening. you'll go into pitch meetings with something that, you know, is just give Amazing. it a chance. And then, yes. and then people come back with this group think, I mean, when I, when I was first working on Power Rangers, what I would hear all the time, and it made me so mad, is that I would hear, well, we have to make, uh, all of our shows have to be made for boys because everybody knows that girls don't buy toys. It's only boys, and it's boys ages two to five. Therefore, if we want to maximize our profit margins, whatever, we have to only make things for boys two to five. And as a lifelong time toy collector myself, it would infuriate me. I mean, I have a thousand Barbies in my bedroom that say differently. <laughs> and I didn't buy Barbies because I saw them on a TV show. I bought them because I saw them in the store from when I was little. And, you know, other other little girls in my neighborhood had them too. And I thought they were beautiful. And I liked the play pattern. I, I like to fix hair and dress up dolls <laughs> and and people too and dogs as well yes. so it's just an extension of something else that something that i love but um that that belief for years that at least like the first i don't know maybe 10 years that i was in the business i would hear that all the time in fact we even had a show a girl's it was sort of a girl's power rangers i guess you could call it um that it it was in active development it, and the, there were toy models that were made and everything. There was quite a bit of investment and it was dropped before it ever got into production because it was a bunch of old white guys who were calling the shots. And they, I remember being in one development meeting where I was the only girl and everybody else was, you know, a middle-aged guy and they were pontificating about things that girls liked. And I was thinking like, this is, this is outrageous. Like there's not one girl contributing to the, I was terrified. I didn't want to say anything, but, but I went back and I told my boss, he wasn't at that meeting. I said, look, this is going to be a girl's show. If it does go forward, we need to have at least one girl or one other girl behind besides me. Cause I had no power. I was rather junior at that point. I was like, there needs to be at least one other girl, like a story editor or somebody who, who can speak on behalf of girls? Because look, if these, if I thought these guys were plugged into the female psyche, I would, I would say so. But they were not. <laughs> they were just, they were just riffing on. Oh yeah, all girls like purple and unicorns. And yes, while those things have had their moments, girls are more than purple and unicorns. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, but but to answer your or to summarize the answer to your question, I. I I think that um, it's a combination of like the, all the different platforms now and all the different businesses that are in animation. Like it's not just to toy companies now. It's like um, other brands are using animation for storytelling and commercials and so forth. And then um, 
and then also the I guess you would call it the political climate or just like more inclusivity and so forth. I mean, there are a lot more opportunities for storytelling from other cultures and um, and more more stuff happening for women. You know, the visibility is better and so forth. So you're so you're starting to see you're starting to see more trends in animation where that protagonist is a female, uh, more females of color in the storylines that are being pitched and being created out there. Yes, and also a really a, a consciousness to. In- include people from those groups so if it's a show about girls about a female or like a female superhero or a female middle school student it won't be like a 90 percent male writing staff necessarily or you know it'll 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 have some some women in key positions or key, key decision makers and um not all the time do those people get credit um but they're at least contributing, which is a step up from before where they, they weren't contributing, nor were they getting credit. They were just kind of sitting there taking notes in the meeting and like scratching their heads. So I think there's been some progress in that regard. So throughout all your hearing of pitches for animation storylines, what what makes a good animated product in your opinion you know from hearing pitch after pitch from from what you're seeing currently out there you know is there a genre specific an animation style a store you know a a specific storyline that is you're seeing as this is your trajectory i think going back to that group think that we were talking about there are trends that executives who receive pitches a lot want to see because it's just you know some somebody does it right and it just catches fire and that becomes the the new trend but um i think i think it's for me what i've observed is that um it's a bit of having a successful pitch is a bit of it's a bit of luck a bit of talent a bit of research or maybe a lot of research um it's a combination of lots of things clicking but what i um have told consulting clients of mine in the past is that selling your show is or, or getting investors and stakeholders is not the same as actually producing the show so you're you're creating sales materials to get people invested and then then once once you get those things get those contributors on board then you're making the show but you've got to do a bit of razzle dazzle and a bit of you know you have to have some some pt barnum salesmanship in you to get the thing to the point where you can you can actually produce it and not just that's not to say that you're not always kind of auditioning for your job every day. I mean, there is a bit of that just to stay employed, I guess. But it's it's a it's um a a different art form, I think, to sell your project and to get past the gatekeepers. Because the gatekeepers have one initiative and then once you have you've gotten past the gatekeepers, there's a usually a whole other set of people that you need to please. So it's a different it's a different mindset, but um, but I I actually learned a lot about pitching in the last couple of years, and it was just 
accidentally and, th and through doing it, um, there is a way that is, especially pitching um, merchandise-driven entertainment, which is like when something comes from the genesis of the idea is a, a toy line or consumer product, a video game or what have you, um, there's a brand presentation that usually goes along with a story presentation. So you want to show that especially there's a books book that is or deck that uh for the storyline and then there's a deck that handles just the merch yes so there's um there's a brand a brand deck and then there's a story deck or a brand bible or and a story bible and depending on what what the intellectual property is you'll put the like if if you believe that your story is not so great, but you've got an IP that has sold bajillions of dollars in the past, you're going to want to put the emphasis on the, hey, look how much money this has made in the past. And we can always figure out the story, you know, like, but if you've got a great story, but an IP that was not a bestseller, like maybe some obscure comic book or, um, I don't know, some, some kind of, uh, consumer product that it, maybe it's a toy, but maybe, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a game, not a, a board game or something like that. Then, um, you want to emphasize the, I have a great story, even though this is something that's flown under the radar for all these years, it's, it's, we came up with this very creative story to drive it. So there's kind of two parts to the, the pitch. And, um, and I, so being in the world of, of a, a lot of the world of kids entertainment animation also like reviving heritage brands like um i worked on pink panther and sonic the hedgehog and um uh various other things in the past those are two that postman pat a, a british ip that's fairly well known um you you do want to emphasize the 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 hallmarks of the brand for sure um and and the the fan base, but also you want to put a bit of a new spin on it. Otherwise, um, I've had this happen in meetings where somebody will say, um, "Well, we've got we've got a hundred old episodes of Sonic the Hedgehog that people are still watching. So why do we need to commission a new show?" That was actually some feedback that I got at at Netflix um, pitching a new version of a Sonic the Hedgehog show, and then also. If you're going to do something different, like um, th this was the real eye opener that I, I had in the last couple of years. Um, I was working on a Japanese IP that was very adult in nature. It was it was kind of naughty, um, but outside of J and in Japan, it would qualify as entertainment for everybody. But outside of Japan, it was it was not likely to yeah it not likely to be on disney channel or something like that got you so, so more geared toward the adult yes okay. but in in order to attract a toy partner outside of japan our chances were better if we tamed it down a bit because the the major toy companies that we would want to partner with like mattel and hasbro for instance they're going to shy away from things that are as edgy as what we had so um so we had to do a lot of 
censorship, basically. So we had, so what we had was a commitment from Nintendo to release the game worldwide. And then we had all these, Jap we had 50 22 minute Japanese TV episodes. The animation was beautiful, but it was a little weird. Um, it was weird, like the storytelling, there were a lot of things that, um, there were a lot of Japanese references in there too that maybe would just not be understandable to audiences. Right, right, which wouldn't and, land in the U.S. Wouldn't land right in the U.S. Yeah, they wouldn't get that. They wouldn't get that traditional reference of that storyline. Right. Okay. Yeah, and so, um, so we had a budget to do localization reversioning um, uh, because Nintendo very much wanted the TV show to be. A marketing material to sell the video games so we we and and um so we had permission to do this these adaptations but we noticed that when we embarked on the project we were losing a lot of the humor because we had to be so safe with it i mean a lot of the humor was naughty humor and it was it was valid but we had to really tame it down so just for an experiment we took three or four episodes and we we did minimal censorship and we just really went for it with the naughty humor and of course in our office that was everyone's favorite because we could just like let loose and then we so that was our experiment and then we went ahead with the the localization of the um the tamer version and so so we thought well, let's just try this to see what happens. We will pitch the naughty version as well as the kids version and just see what kind of a response we got. So okay. so we went and we pitched to Comedy Central. We pitched the naughty version. We actually pitched the naughty version a few places. And it was something that my colleagues and I hadn't, I had never pitched to Comedy Central but I, I was so fortunate, fortunate and tickled that we even got the meeting because it's like, oh, we're playing in the grown-up world now. This is yeah, very yeah, exciting. right, yeah. Right. So we we brought our whole dog and pony show there, which was a kid-oriented pitch because that's all any of us knew. I guess right, right. I guess I should have done more research, but I didn't. I just figured like, who doesn't love toys? Who doesn't love to learn about the brand? So we brought like all these free toys. We brought the big brand PowerPoint presentation. We had all these statistics and everything. We had this the story bible, and then we had the the video that we were going to show the um pi, the ep episode. And for an hour, we with three of us, we regaled the two Comedy Central um, executives. And by the end of it, they were just like sitting there stupefied, and they were like, "You guys are too good for us." And we were like, "What? <laughs> what the hell is going on?" And they're like. We have never had a pitch like this before. Wow. And we were like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, this is this what we do. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, well, usually this is this is how shows get greenlit, usually at Comedy Central. There's a famous comedian. There's, you know, Kevin Hart uh, comes in with a couple of his people, his writers, his pals, his entourage, whatever. They come in, they sit down, we shoot the breeze for an hour, and then we've got a show. <laughs> we just, you know, we say funny things, we talk about stuff that interests all of us, and then we've got a show afterwards. And um, and they're like, we've never actually seen animation in the like this. Is, like it just blew their minds. They didn't know what to do, and. Um, they passed. They passed on the project. They didn't pass in the room, but we kind of had a sense that that's wh where they were going because they were like, 
when we do animation, it's not that good. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's your stuff is such high quality. And like we had 50 22 minute episodes and they were CG. It was like high quality, almost theatrical quality animation because a lot of people don't know, but Japan does beautiful CG as well as 2D animation. So, um, so they ended up passing and that was the reason that we got was you're too good. Like we, like Comedy Central doesn't even know about merchandising and stuff. Like they're just, they've just got a different business model and we were not it. We were not fitting into it. So Blanche can, can, um, testify can, can to that. Test, yeah, exactly. She Shining heard in. all the, um, the, you know, all of my wringing of hands and, the, you know, pulling out of hair. She was witness to that. So, um, yeah, so that was a real wake up call for me. Come here, Blanche. Come here. Um, sorry about that. Um, when I get worked up, she gets worked up. So I need, I need to, I need to dial it back. <laughs> so, um, but that was a real wake up call for me because never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that a pitch could be too good for, and certainly not for Comedy Central as a, as a consumer, I love Comedy Central and I would never, the animation, live action, everything that they do, I feel that it, it, it's excellent entertainment and I never thought of it in terms of like budget or like uh, just, I, I just didn't think of it in those terms and because my mind is in that mode of pitching stuff that where we're selling merchandise and it's it's just a different mindset. So what I really needed to do was to research, okay, what actually happens in, but you know what, if I would have done that, we might not have pitched to Comedy Central because we didn't have a famous comedian. We didn't have any of those things <laughs> that they usually look for. So then what do you do? I mean, maybe some, sometimes they'll change their mandate and you'll show them something that they love. And, you know, it's, well, here, here's an interesting thing because you're you're touching on you know animation and TV and that crossover and 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 the decks and 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 the branding decks along with the story decks. Um, let's say that somebody has created a animated TV show and um, they're looking at tying in that IP and let's say they're creating a graphic novel. Have you seen? Is there a trend in? the graphic novels being starting to be translated into TV shows? And if so, what um, demographic are they, you know, handling? Yeah, so there's a, a an emerging trend that's picking up a lot of momentum right now in um, in that um, it's it's called webtoons or, or web comics. And um, this is something pioneered by the Korean entertainment industry. Um, in Korea, I, I guess maybe it was in the last 10 to 15 years, they have been very instrumental in um, developing this vertical scrolling storytelling. So comics that you can you can look at on your devices, but they they scroll vertically, which is is optimal. Okay, so I they think. scroll up, uproll. They yeah, uproll. they uproll. Okay. Right, and so. Okay. Um, and interestingly, that's the way they do storyboards in Korea. They do it. I, I think maybe it relates to the way their their let um, letters. You know the, the. Oh yes, yes, the way they write. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. So I think it. You know, we're left to right. So right, th and that's up how, and down. Yeah, yes. gotcha. So, but anyway, this, this, that 
um, method of top to uh, bottom scrolling is very conducive, especially for a small device. It's it's actually easier than the side scrolling. So um, and and then being that um, it's it's these stories are developed for digital devices. There are a lot more bells and whistles that go into them that rather than like a book that's printed. So they've kind of got like some limited animation or you know layers of the 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 art and stuff like that. So um, so web comics have become they were super super popular in Korea and then um, spread throughout Southeast Asia and um, they've really been up and coming in. Western markets in the last couple of years, and there are a few platforms that have have really broken through in a big way in the U.S. One is called Tapas Media, and um, there's another one called Webtoon, and they're both Korean companies that originated in Korea, but they have offices in L.A. and um, they have a self-publishing platform, kind of like Amazon has its own self-publishing platform. So um, they do a lot. They do a lot of incentivizing of, of creators, of vi visual artists who also write and tell stories. And so they have these platforms. I think it's free to to create on any. Uh, and there's more than just Tapas and Webtoon. Those are the two big ones. There are other ones too, but those are the ones that have really um, been very successful in having their IPs optioned and uh, for for film and, and TV and such and so um, so it's sort of like the early days or, or it's sort of like creating for for YouTube or um, the app store where there are tons of creators and then sometimes these uh, companies will commission certain artists to do things for them like if you if if you are known in the, in the comic book community, you might be recruited to come over to one of these webtoon platforms and do something special for them. But um, this is kind of an in a, an, an, an emerging a new growth, a new an emerging growth market, and especially one where it sounds like it's open for the youth for for new and emerging artists to jump on in in that up swing of that of that growth well it, it well you are also a hybrid i mean you're a director writer you have now started doing shorts and uh you've got a feature that you're soliciting um as well how has this you know communicate has this experience this life experience communicated into your directing and your writing what are you trying to do with that that's a good question <laughs> um usually uh I try to tie in personal projects with what I'm doing for a company or, or it, whether it's um, a consulting client or if I'm working full time or closely with another entity. Um, so oftentimes I'll be commissioned to work on something for a company and maybe the company will shelve it and the rights will revert back to me and then I'll just pick it up and do something with it on my own. Um, I unfortunately, just because there's not enough time in the day, I, I have so many ideas of things that I would like to do, but I just uh, it, 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 it's hard for me to just do something completely on spec, completely for passion purposes. I, I have to kind of 
It, it needs to suit several, it, serve several masters in terms of like my life and employment and stuff like that before I can devote time to it because I just sure. have to make a living. So, um, so yeah, so most of the things that I do are somehow tied into either a client that I'm working with or an employer. And then I have taken, uh, one thing that I have done is um, revisited old material. So something that maybe I worked on a few years back and I shelved it for whatever reason. And then something will, uh, maybe, maybe I'll read something that reminds me like, hey, I have something like that and it's actually better than this thing <laughs> that is getting all the attention. So maybe it's worthwhile for me to dust it off and you know, the, um, the, try to pitch it or, you know, bring, bring it back into, um, the marketplace. So, yeah, so I try to, I try to have like personal synergy cause I, I, I have all these different things that I want to do, but I have to be smart about how I budget my time. Sure, sure, sure. Well, uh, what is, um, a bit of advice you can give a youthful young film, a bit of advice you can give a youthful young filmmaker not necessarily youthful in age but you know new and coming in that you can share with us on anything i would say to be nice to everybody it's to be <laughs> nice and respectful of everybody and not just everybody that you meet in the business like everybody in life from people at the grocery store in the parking lot in your apartment building or, you know, at the gas station, wherever, travel abroad or what have you, just because, well, because it, it's good as a human being, there's not enough nice, <laughs> niceness in the world. So, so if you don't do it, who's going to do it? Like you need to <laughs> take responsibility for that. But also, um, I find that uh, sometimes creators have the attitude like, well, just as a, for instance, for instance, people connecting with me on LinkedIn, and I love LinkedIn, I, I sing its praises all the time, but people who connect with me, it's always like pitching something to me right off the bat. Like they don't really, I'm just like a number to them, or I'm a stepping stone for them to get what they want. And they don't even pretend, like at least pretend that you're interested in other people, like <laughs> go through the motions and then maybe it'll become sincere. It'll become or organic afterwards. Cause I just find that um, so, so many people are, they're out for themselves. And we all know that survival does require a certain amount of uh, aggressive behavior, but I, I don't know. I, I think there needs to be more niceness in the world and certainly more niceness in the business. And if you're not so me, me, me oriented and you think about what you can bring to the table and what you can contribute to someone else's career, because everybody wants to get to another level. I can't think of anybody who's just like, oh, well, I've reached the pinnacle and, you know, I'm just going to coast. Like even Oscar winners and stuff, like they, they're still vying for their next job and you know trying to stay relevant and so forth so um that would be that would be my advice just to be okay good and and what's a dirty little secret that you learned along the way that you can share like uh like if somebody had told you something oh my gosh i wish i had known this five years ago oh wow um well i can go back to my comedy central pitching experience if somebody, if i would have paid attention it's funny because i kind of put grown-up entertainment on a pedestal because it's 
sort of has a mystique for me because I work mostly in kids and family. So when I have that, that uh, opportunity, which is rare to work on something that's just for grownups, um, I feel like, Oh, well, I don't need, like that. I'm a grown up, so I don't need to research that. Like, I just instinctively know what to do because I'm a consumer of grown up entertainment. And I might have, like, slacked off on my, in that case, especially slacked off on my research. Even though I, I'll watch those channels and love those shows, it's more like from a fangirl instead of a business person. So, yeah, separ separate your fan self from your business self and try to have a balance because the enthusiasm of fandom is great. It's, it's hard to manufacture that. And um, that, that's wonderful enthusiasm, but then balance it out with your homework and research. <laughs> that's great, great advice. What are your handles? What are your social handles for somebody that wants to reach out to you? Okay. So, so LinkedIn is my jam. I am a maniac on LinkedIn and that, and I'm just, Marlene Sharp on, on LinkedIn. So that's where I, I like to put all my social media eggs in that basket. Although I do have, I'm on um, um, Twitter uh, at Diva Marlene 70. And then um, Instagram is at Sharp 6250. And then uh, Facebook, I think, is just Marlene.sharp at Marlene.sharp. And then, oh, my my uh, my business my personal business is Pink Poodle Productions. You can reach out to that. You can reach out. So anyone listening in, yes, Pink Poodle Productions. You can reach out to her on that. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much for coming on the show, Marlene Sharp, giving us a wealth of information on animation, um, uh, and and furthering you know your individual career as a writer, as a director, and creating your own uh, content under your Pink poodle productions um thank you so much uh uh if you want to um see the video component of this podcast please go on to the lafemme uh youtube channel and you can see the video component there it is all uh, the podcast will be on all the major podcast syndication sites make sure to review us on itunes and thank you all for listening to